reading all of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. I charge you in the presence of God and of, Jesus, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to, come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful for ministry. Tychus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him accordingly to his deeds. Beware of him yourself for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May not be charged against them, for the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisica and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Ebolus sends greetings to you, as do Pudence and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Gabe, uh, especially for working along with me as I pulled an audible and made you read a bunch of names that are hard to pronounce. We were slated only to go uh, through verse 8 this morning. Uh, but welcome again. I'm Travis. Uh, it's good to be with you here as we get to open God's Word together. Uh, as you may be guessing, since we covered the entirety of chapter 4, and if you have the Bible in front of you, there is no chapter 5 in 2 Timothy. We are concluding our series uh, this morning that we've been calling Follow the Pattern of Grace. Uh, we've been looking at one of the very last letters that Paul ever wrote in his life uh, to encourage his friend and his ministry partner, Timothy, and through Timothy to the whole church that he oversaw, and through that church down through the ages, to us, encouraging them to follow that life-changing, unmatched pattern of grace. 
We've been focusing in this book about the pattern of grace on just that, on grace, because it's so quintessential to the Christian life. It's crucial that we not just know it intellectually, but that we actually live it out practically, that it, that it ooze out through us, so to speak, that it would be present in everything we do, that it might transform us and our community, that we would be that city on a hill that God has meant us to be through grace. Uh, in this letter, we've heard Paul talk about the pattern of grace, which we said was that God moved toward us first. That as much as we may feel like we've got to run to him, turn our lives around, it's God who before we ever did anything came running to us. A part of the pattern of that grace is that God chose, that to, chose to do that for us just because he chose to do that. Not because he saw something in us and he thought, I've got to have that person. That person is finally good enough. That person is ready. No, he chose us just because he chose us. And that choice never changes. We've heard about God's grace for our weakness and limitations, how his strength actually anticipates that we'll need him and draws us to rely on him. We've heard about the problem of self-centeredness and the antidote of humility. We've heard about the life without grace versus the life with grace and how Jesus makes the difference between those two things. And today we're going to bring it all to a close. We're going to hear Paul charge us to carry on the life of grace for the good of ourselves and our world through the strength that God gives us through his support. So through our text, I want us to see Paul giving us, one, a charge to press on in the life of grace, uh, verses 1 through 5. Second, the significance of that charge in verses 6 through 8. And finally, the support for that charge in verses 15 through 18. So the charge, the significance of that charge, and the support for it. But before we do that, would you bow your heads and pray with me, and let's ask God to fill up our hearts together. Father, we bring ourselves to a moment of stillness before you now, having heard you speak, wondering now how that applies to our lives, how we might be different and changed through this, believing that your word is always meant to be a living and active thing, that it was your word that spoke creation into being. Your words have power. And so this morning, God, we ask that your word would have power in our lives, to make us so tangibly different, to change us and renew us and make us whole, to make us truly a people of grace. God, we know that, that can't begin and end with a simple series. That can't happen in five weeks. That, that barely starts to happen in a lifetime. But would you do that persistent work to make us more and more a people who are growing up in grace? In your Son's name and by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, please keep those open or Bible apps, or feel free to just listen along as you're able. We're going to go back through the passage a little bit together. Uh, but starting here with the charge that Paul gives us to press on in the life of grace, starting in verses 1 through 5. As we see there, Paul gives Timothy what is actually a very solemn charge. It's not a light thing. Now we see that in, in how he talks to Timothy in verse 1 there. If you look, it says, I charge you. And then what does he say? It says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, 
who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. He's not just saying, I think this is a good idea. He's saying, I charge you before these witnesses, before the power of God who is to come and to judge, before his kingdom who will change everything. It's with these things as witness, so to speak, before you that I say, this is what you are going to do. This is, this is more like an oath formula or a vow that Paul is giving to Timothy. He's not saying, if you get around to it, it would be really nice if you could... No, right? This is not some of those things that we do over email to coworkers when we're trying to just sort of subtly suggest that they get their act together, right? This is, this is Paul saying, this is what you should do today. As your superior, Paul was the apostle at that time. Timothy was not an apostle. He was saying, as one charged by God to carry out the good news and the hope and the kingdom of God, here is what you are to do. These are your orders, is another way that we could say it. So what are the orders then that Paul is giving Timothy and giving us? In short, they're a summary of what Paul has been calling us to really in this whole book, to follow and to more pointedly not just follow, but to share the pattern of grace, the life of grace with those around you, to share the gospel in particular, the good news of Jesus Christ as the center of life and hope rather than ourselves as the center of life and hope. And what he says is that's going to involve really two primary things that we see in these verses here. It's going to involve, in verse 2, a confident proclamation and secondly, a humble correction. In verse 2, we see that Paul is calling us to a very confident proclamation. He says, preach, or we could also say proclaim, right, to shout it out, to tell about the word. The word being a shorthand way of talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is calling us to share about the full, free, and final salvation that we have now in Jesus. He wants us to share not to hold in, but to share about these things, not to make it a personal and private choice, but one that is actually so good we would want to share it with others. He's talking about, through this whole book, about how good this news is. He has talked to us about the full salvation that we have in Jesus, a Jesus who saves sinners of whom we can be the worst, and he will still save us about a full salvation that completely covers all of our mistakes, not the mistakes that happened until I got to a certain age, not the mistakes that happened until yesterday, but, but today's mistakes he can't cover. All of our mistakes are covered by Jesus taking all of our judgment, all of our separation, all of our stubbornness and persistent walking away from him and nailing it to death on the cross so that it might end there. Paul's talked to us about proclaiming a free salvation in Jesus in this book where it's not by our effort in any way, shape, or form, but completely by the grace of God, by Jesus Christ bringing us home, not us bringing ourselves home, something that can handle all that we need, and he gives it to us for free. He's talked to us about a final salvation in Jesus where God's verdict about you has already been spoken and finished and set down. And that verdict is that you are the beloved. That you belong. 
not because of the decisions that you have made, but because he has chosen you and all your junk and me and all my junk to belong. Paul says, confidently share that hope, something that's that big and that good, that's worth having, that's worth sharing. Confidently give these things to others. Confidently share it as though it really has the power for life for you. And the charge that he gives Timothy is, again, not just to talk about these things, but to actually, at times, humbly correct when we see one another walking away from grace. And if we've learned anything from this book, it's that we all constantly walk away from grace, right? This is a project that will never end for each of us. The call is to correct earnestly and with determination, yet also with a humble patience. To walk gently with one another out of the life of self-centeredness that keeps calling us And Paul says we're charged to do that in season and out of season, which is another way of saying you're supposed to do this whether it's convenient or not. Whether you budgeted time in your calendar to care about someone else this week or not. Whether you budgeted energy in your life and in your heart to care about a family member, to walk with a friend, a coworker, a neighbor back towards grace or not, in season or out of season, whether it's convenient or not. Lovingly, patiently, with grace, pursue them. We are not to avoid loving confrontation. Paul doesn't give us that out here. Some of us are conflict avoiders. Some of us love conflict, right? Some of we like to bring the hammer, and others of us like to bring the pillow, right? Paul is not giving us the opportunity to be either of those here, where we simply walk away from conflict or we bring the hammer down without any kind of gentleness and grace. We must still lean in to conflict. To not do that would be to abandon others to abandon them to a life of self-centeredness, even as this picture gives us that Paul talks about of being abandoned by someone else, being abandoned by Demas in verse 10, and others abandon him in that time of trial. That's what happens when we let others simply walk away from grace without any efforts to care for and pursue them lovingly, persistently over time. It's a picture of not just uh, a, a mutual live and let live, not just in an agree to disagree, and sometimes we have to say that in those relationships, but to completely let others go, to not care for them, is to abandon them. When we won't say a hard word at times, when we won't confront the sin in our lives or the sin in others' lives gently and humbly, we are abandoning them to the unraveling that is a life turned in on itself as we talked about last week. We're leaving them alone, without help. We are not to do that. We are not to let them go as if life could just be found anywhere else, as if Christianity is just one of many options that you could choose from, which is what our culture tells us, instead of living like there is only self-centeredness and unraveling or there is grace and God and a center and a life that will carry on. 
We are not to let others go. We are to live as if this actually is the words of life, to do that again in a gracious and humble way. Where is God going to push you on that this morning? Are you the person that needs to be pushed towards saying a hard word sometimes? To have the courage to step in lovingly in that way? Are you going to be the person that needs to be pushed the other way? That, yeah, you're ready to bring the confrontation, but you need to slow down and think again before you speak. To take an extra second and pause and bring that confrontation with love and humility and gentleness. Because Paul says if we confront out of a desire to just be right, to just be affirmed, if we're trying to have some sort of payback, if we are just trying to confront out of, out of fear, out of frustration, we are not, as he says that we are supposed to be in verse 5, sober-minded in grace. Paul's likening those moments when we just bring the verbal smackdown on somebody to being drunk to being intoxicated, to not seeing, thinking, or speaking clearly, that in those moments we are buzzed on fear, on worry, on self-centeredness, on getting even, on being heard, on whatever it is. We're not centered on grace. We are not sober-minded in grace. Paul says we are to respond with gentleness, patience, with humility, as if we were appealing to ourselves. So when there is someone in your life, in your family, in your friends, and I know this is hard. I have people in my life that are not walking with the Lord right now, and it's very challenging. It's easy just to get frustrated. It's easy just to let them go. But Paul is urging us that when we see that person in your life, to think of them as yourself. If it was you walking away from life, wouldn't you want someone to come and get you? If it was you walking away from life, wouldn't you want someone to come with gentleness and patience and understanding? Pursue others as though they were yourself. Offer grace as though it's you that you're speaking to. And it may be uh, no harder to do this than with those that we're closest with, with our siblings, with our parents, with our kids, with our best friends. Those are the places where God is going to show you what your heart looks like when it comes to engaging others in grace. And that's the place where we get to slowly learn how to get to do this more and more together. Because the fact is, as verse 3 and 4 point out, we are all prone to wander. Paul's encouraging us to do this for one another, knowing that we're going to need each other all the time. We are all prone to, it says a little more literally, to turn our ears away from the truth. Not just turn away, but almost a, a moving your head. Someone's trying to talk to you and nope, I'm not going to listen to you. Like this is what, little kids do this the best, right? If you're not going to listen to someone, you go, mm-mm, 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 no, 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 right? That's what we do and we don't want to hear. That's kind of the picture that Paul is giving us here when we are just completely, when you're in that place, when you don't want to hear it, we are to approach each other with grace. And Paul's saying we're all going to get to that place. We won't listen to the truth at times. We're going to want to hear something else. We're going to want something that we like better, that's more comfortable, that doesn't challenge us, that doesn't make me do anything that I don't want to do. Paul says we're going to turn away, if we could put these things in a category, to myths. Things 
that offer uh, intrigue and adventure and mystery, a chance for me to do something, me to play the role, me to be the one that saves me or engages, things where it's all about me and my pursuit, me in control, me with efforts and ideas, and we're gonna collect sources and thinkers and other people like us in those thoughts that confirm that for us. We're gonna put ourselves in the echo chamber and we're just gonna quietly close the door. We're gonna sit in those myths that challenge us, that draw us to make it about us. But God is the opposite of a myth. In myths, we chase down the thing. We find that secret path. We go on that adventure. We find that, that hidden discovery, that mystery. We go on a quest. But in God's grace, God the eternal, the almighty, the infinite, the boundless one comes chasing after you. He seeks you out. It's not that God is hiding behind some mountain, you have to go find him, that he's at the bottom of the ocean, that he's at the other side of the universe. No, the, the picture of scripture is that God is right here. God has run to wherever you are. He has chased you down and myths are us thinking, I have to go find them. He won't ever come to me. I am the one that must quest. It becomes about me, it becomes about my pursuit of God instead about God's pursuit of me. So we talked about a couple weeks ago. This is what these things are. When we chase other things in life, they become about my pursuit instead of God's pursuit of me. And really, that's what the cross was all about. God chasing you down. The very heartbeat of Christianity is the cross, and the very essence of the cross is God's pursuit of you. His pursuit of you when it wasn't convenient or comfortable. His pursuit of you when it didn't add things to his life but took things away from him. That's what the cross is. It's God chasing you down. It's a stake in the ground against every other way that we might try and claw and scratch and wiggle our way towards us pursuing him as the way that we're saved instead of him just running to us and scooping us up like a parent picks up a child. That's what we're charged to live into, to call one another back to, out of the myths where it's me chasing down life, me as the one who has it all, to it's God who chases me even when I don't chase him back. That's what we're charged to confidently proclaim, a God who chases you even when you don't chase him back, a God who, who draws us to humbly draw others back because he, with humility, Jesus came with humility to draw us back, even when it wasn't convenient. That's what we're charged to do, Paul says, but but why is he making this, this solemn charge now? Why is he giving Timothy these orders, putting him under this, this oath, so to speak, right now? Why is this significant that Paul feels like he has got to give him these marching orders, these charges today? That gets us to our second point, the significance of the charge in verses 6 through 8. Paul's expressing great urgency 
in charging Timothy to this, not just because we live in the last days as he talked about, as we already talked about that era, any time after Jesus came, between when he comes again, those are the last days. He's giving us this urgency, not just because we're in that time, but because Paul now is actually moving on. Paul knows this is it. He is near the end of his life. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Since the time of his departure has come, he is already being poured out as a drink offering. It's quite likely a reference, really, to his martyrdom. In the Old Testament, a drink offering was a sacrifice poured out for sin. Paul is seeing himself as one poured out as a sacrifice, that his life would be offered as a sacrifice. He knows that his time is short. He's in prison when he's writing this. He is not expecting things to go well. He's going to persevere to the end, whatever that is. He's not giving up now, though he can see that the end is coming and the end is not good. Even though pain and suffering are coming his way, that he is going to be poured out like that. He's going to persevere, but he knows that the end has come. That's why he's starting to talk to Timothy about these things. That's why he's passing this charge along. This is Paul passing the baton from his hand to Timothy's hand. Because now it's Timothy's turn to run. Paul has finished the race. It's not his turn anymore. We're all going to reach that point in life. Some of us maybe sooner than later where we find ourselves uh, retiring, we find ourselves slowing down, whatever it may be, that we're going to pass the baton on to the next generation and that it's their turn to run. Paul names names here of people whose turn it now was to run. He gets specific. He says it's Timothy's turn to run now. He talks about his ministry partners who are still out there, Crescens, Titus, Mark, Luke, and Tychicus. It's their turn to run. Verses 19-21, it's also Prisca and Aquila and the whole household of Anesiphorus' turn. Not just grown-ups, but a household was kids. Kid, it's your turn to run too. It's Erastus's, Linus, and Claudius's turn. Paul is thinking about people that he has labored with and knows those that he is passing the baton onto. The life of grace always happens in community where you are known and getting to know. We are passing these things on to one another. He is entrusting them with the pattern of grace that they might also, verse 8, get the victor's crown in the heavenly kingdom. Another way to say this is this is an end of an era. The apostles were coming to a sunset, and this is going to be the time after the apostles when the church is given to run on their own. Paul is saying, now it's your turn. And not just to Timothy, but he was talking to the ones who would most immediately follow him. 
He's not saying this stops with you and no one else does this after you, but the expectation is that you continue this and everyone else after you continues this. So this morning, I want you to hear Paul saying to you, you who are here actually because of the faithfulness of people like Timothy who took this charge and when it wasn't convenient, when it wasn't fun, passed along the life and the pattern of grace. He is saying, it's your charge now. It's your time. He's calling you by name this morning, passing the baton to you. He's saying, Sarah, it's your turn. Saying, Eliza, it's your turn. Tim, it's your turn. Miriam, it's your turn. Nathan, it's your turn. Matt, it's your turn. He is going down the list of people, and I'm not going to go all the way through because we'd be here a long time, but hear him this morning saying your name, saying it's your turn now. It's our turn. We are here. God has put you in a specific place and time, wherever you may be, for you to run the race, for you to hold out the life of grace. It's you. It's your turn. It's our turn together. There's going to be suffering and hardship. It's not going to be easy or convenient. That's why it's a charge. Charges are there for when you don't want to follow the orders. They're there to push you back in between the lines when you are prone to drift away. It's to keep us on the rails when hard times come. But the good news is that, yes, this is our charge, and we get to share in it, but we are not doing that alone. We get to do that with support. In the Christian life, God never calls you to do something that he doesn't also give you the resources and equipping for. He doesn't send you out and just say, good luck. He gives you his support. And that brings us to our last point, uh, the support for the charge in verses 16 uh, through 18. Paul says it's the Lord himself that is our support in this charge. He doesn't say angels. He doesn't just say the scriptures. He doesn't just say the community of the people of God. He actually says God himself, the Lord. The same one that he says is going to come to judge, to create all things, to bring a heavenly kingdom. The one that has that power is actually the same one that supports you. He says it's the Lord in verse 17 who stood by him and strengthened him in his trials, even when no one else did. When he found himself running the race alone, God was with him. Maybe you find yourself this morning running the race alone. God is with you. He says it was the Lord in verse 18 who would rescue him from every evil deed and bring him safely into the heavenly kingdom. God was going to take care of him on this mission so that others would hear the message. He was going to make sure that the gifts that he had given Paul would be sufficient for the task that he had called him to so that the entire world might hear about grace. And Paul doesn't think that that means that God would never let him get hurt. He had just said, I am being poured out as a drink offering. Paul knows and has deeply known that the Christian life is hard and involves suffering. And yet he can say here that God is going to save me from every evil deed. He knows that the way that God is going to bring him into the heavenly kingdom is through his death, through being martyred. 
And yet his confidence was that God would support him even in that. Not despite suffering, but in suffering. Because in Christ, Paul knows that death is no longer a threat. Christ broke that thing down so that it would no longer be a threat to you and I. Through his death and resurrection, he fundamentally changed the way that we as Christians get to look at death by his being left alone by God on the cross, his being abandoned in the agony of the cross, taking the ostracism and shame that was ours so that we might not be left alone in our sin and death. He crushed death by his not being rescued from every evil deed or from death when he did nothing wrong. He saved us so that we might be brought safely into the heavenly kingdom by his pursuit of you. See, what he did in these things is turn death from an end to simply a door. In the Christian life, death becomes nothing more than a door that we walk through to receive our heavenly reward, to being crowned with glory and honor and everlasting life. Jesus made it through to the other side. The way stands open now for us. The bridge is open. It has been built. It is established. We can walk across. Jesus is our bridge to the other side. Death no longer stands in the way. God has rescued us. He will rescue us from every evil deed because the way stands open in Jesus. And it will not be shut to you. There are none who can close the doors of it to you. That was Paul's support. And it's our support too. That in life or death, whatever life may throw at us, the Lord stands with us in that, even in times when we find ourselves walking alone, carrying the burdens alone. Maybe at school you feel like you are alone. None of your friends are Christians. Your friends would laugh at you if they knew you were a Christian. You feel yourself walking alone. Maybe it's the same at work. You feel you're the only person that would stand up for something that feels ethical, gentle, kind, generous towards others, and you feel yourself walking alone. Maybe in your neighborhood, with the people that you live around, maybe in your family, maybe in your friends, you feel yourself walking the life of grace alone. Hear Paul saying this morning that it was the Lord who stood by me when I was alone. It is now the same for you. It is the Lord who stands by you, even if everyone else has abandoned you. Even when we face real consequences and pain for living out this life of hope, even when we are ostracized, even when people stop being our friends, even when our careers hit a dead end because of our faith proclamation, he stands with us in the trial, not despite the trials. So I want us to see very clearly, and if you're not taking notes this morning, just hear this one thought. You don't have to take notes. I'm just trying to say Here's what I want you to hear, one big takeaway from this morning that this means, that this means that trials, challenges, and sufferings are not, hear me, they are not the evidence of the absence of God in your life or in our world. 
suffering, trials, and challenges are not the evidence of the absence of God in your life. They are not a sign that he doesn't exist or that he has forsaken us. Suffering isn't the absence of God's presence. It is a place of his presence. It is a place that he delights to dwell, to actually meet you there. It's where he stands by you in the trial. It's where he meets you when you are under fire, when you are under pressure. It's not the place of his absence, it's the place of his presence. It's where he truly keeps you from those evil things, which are not just the suffering in this life. He has overcome death and suffering. The true evil things that would most ultimately break you is not walking across that bridge not living a life of faith that leans on Jesus, what he is always going to keep you from is falling away from him. And he will use whatever it takes to keep you from falling away. Maybe that's through letting you go for a little while. I don't know if you've had that season in your life. I've had that season in my life where I've said, God, I don't want to do this. I'm out. Maybe the suffering and trial you experience is actually him letting you go a little bit, letting you walk away and enter into the suffering that is a life of self-centeredness without God as our hope. Maybe it'll be through letting you suffer, maybe physically, maybe through suffering shame and loneliness, in your school, in your workplace, in your family. Maybe it'll be through not giving you something that you deeply long for and hope for, something that you wish you could have that you feel is a good thing and is a good thing by itself, and he may withhold that from you. So that instead of having the affirmation from friends or coworkers, having an unbroken record of always being someone that's read their Bible, always being someone that's showing up to church, always being someone that's in connection with God, instead of having that deeply hoped for thing and yet falling away from God and having that, God may keep it from you to keep you with him. God may keep that from you to keep you with him. God won't spare you suffering. Hear me say this. God will not spare you suffering if it would mean losing you. Any more than a good doctor would spare you surgery because it's going to be painful and recovery would be hard. If God is the great physician, why would we be any more surprised that what a lesser a human physician would do is something that God would do also? He will not spare us pain if it means saving our life. He will use pain as a skillful surgeon, not in a masochistic way, but in a gentle way to bring you home. And the cross shows us he knows what pain feels like. In the Christian life, you do not have an aloof, distant God that has you go through suffering as one that doesn't know what suffering is personally like. As someone who's never experienced, you can say, yeah, God, that's easy for you to say. Life isn't hard for you. 
the incarnation of Jesus as a human being who, just like us, stepped into suffering and, more pointedly, stepped into the cross that you and I might live through that shows us, with the most detailed picture we could ask for, that God knows what it's like to go through suffering to stay near the Lord. That Jesus walked a life of suffering to stay near his Father and for us to be brought in to the family of God with him. He doesn't bring us through suffering as an aloof God, but as one who has entered into the hottest part of the fire to bring us home. To keep you from losing him. Because that is the evil deed that he will not abide. He will not let that happen. He will not let you go. Those he means to have, he will have. God does not let go. And if that means he has to bring you through difficult things to not let you go, you can be sure that he will do that, but he will not let you go. In Jesus, we see a God whose support extends into the fires of life. It doesn't leave you when things get hard. That uses the fire of suffering to keep you from losing him. That's the support that we have in Jesus that goes with us even into these things. So more practically, with that support then, how do we live into Paul's charge to live out the pattern of grace right now with God at the center instead of ourselves, a God who pursues us even when we don't pursue him? How do we hold that hope out today knowing this God is our support? I want to encourage us, encourage us to do sort of exactly what Paul tells us, to have this bold proclamation, to, to almost make uh, big advancing steps, confident that God is going to be with you, knowing that even if you fall, that's going to be part of the process. So I want to encourage us to have that, that courage to do two things, to build and to count. To build, to build new bridges where other bridges in life have burned down. I'm sure you have relationships with people that are not good right now, with people that you're not close to anymore, people that have walked away from the faith, people that are just at odds with you or with each other, and we have stopped talking with them, or we've at least stopped talking about it. I want to encourage you with the Lord as your support to, to seek to build new ways or to try to rebuild old ways to connect with them to rebuild a bridge of communication and relationship with someone in your life. I want you to think of one person right now that you feel God putting on your heart to rebuild a relationship with, to reconnect, someone that has walked away from grace or maybe never knew grace in the first place, but you've just kind of lost touch with them a bit. Who's that person? You write that down, you just put it on your heart, but start to make plans about how you might build bridges to them. You may need to take a breather. That may not happen tomorrow. I'm not saying all this happens immediately, but, but proximity is so important to the life of grace. We're not going to win others back by never showing grace, by never being close enough to offer humility and kindness. Getting farther away from someone who might slowly be open to dialogue will not help them or you change. 
I want to encourage us with the Lord as your support, build that bridge, fight through the awkwardness that is inevitably going to be a part of that. Don't abandon them for the sake of not going through awkwardness. Be the one who takes the life of Jesus, who went through suffering, be equipped by that to go through suffering for others, to suffer through an uncomfortable conversation. Remembering the one who remembered you, who went through those difficult things for you in wise, loving, persistent ways, demonstrate to others that you care about them, that you want to pursue them. And in that slow process, we may show them what they most need to see, which is not a proof, which is not an argument about who God is, but the fact that God, through us, is committed to pursuing them has not given up on them, is not waiting to love them until they get their act together, but has loved them the whole time. And finally, count. Count the cost. Recognize there is going to be a cost to following this charge. We will have the support, but there is still going to be pain. Suffering is still going to come. There is going to be loss entailed with being a Christian, maybe at this time more than there has been in the U.S. in a long time. There will be bumps in the road. I want to encourage you with the support of God, sign up for the bumps, right? Get ready. Give your heart a little bit of suspension so that you can go through the bumps without being thrown off because there is not just suffering, but there is also reward. There's a reward of getting to see lives changed, of people finally having something that doesn't fall apart in your hands, that doesn't break you while you put your weight on it, of people getting to have what we have, of the grace of God and Jesus Christ in their life. There's the reward of of the crown of glory from God himself, of being in the heavenly kingdom, of having that ultimate affirmation and safety and support. So there is going to be a cost But what changes do we need to make right now to anticipate that cost? In the way that you're going to engage that one person, what do you need to change in your life to start doing that? Do you need to do something that prepares you to have that uncomfortable conversation? Do you need to start having uncomfortable conversations with people you feel safe with? Not just maybe the person that you're not ready to have that deeper conversation with. What things do I need to start doing now to prepare myself for a cost to come? Remembering that God is always, as, is always my support. I need to expect that I am going to have to change. God is actually using others in our lives, not just for us to change them, but for them to change us. There is a mutuality that happens throughout the Christian life. That when someone gets saved, it's not because we help them, it's because God grew us together. Anticipate that when we are walking alongside others who don't know Jesus, it's not just they that need to change, or you, if you're not a Christian this morning, that need to change, but we as Christians, that God is calling to change with you, to grow in gentleness, in patience, and understanding through you, that you have a gift to give to us. We are called to grow together. Expect to change and grow with others, not to abandon them. Let's pray.